0: It's all in the news and it's all in everybody's corporate minds worried about it. Gil Schwed doesn't worry. He has a solution. He's the chief executive officer of Checkpoint. And they can be followed, of course, on Twitter at Checkpoint SW. And Gil Schwed joins us here in the studio. Thanks very much for being here. Uh, You are described by many people as the creator, the inventor of the modern firewall. Uh, First of all, do you use that name, you know, in public at any time? And if you do, maybe explain what is this
2: idea of stateful inspection? What is this? Okay, good afternoon. First, I did invent the technology, stateful inspection, and the technology, which was, which is quite old today, but it's actually still relevant, basically knows how to inspect every traffic flow, analyze it at all levels and understand what's going on and based on the organizational policy decide whether it's something that should be accepted, which is allowed or not allowed. Now, over the years, there is uh, 23 years have passed since it was invented, that technology has grown and has many more layers that can actually even today prevent and stop some of the most sophisticated attacks. So it's grown well, well beyond what I could have dreamt of uh, 25 years ago when I start started thinking about the idea.
1: Can you tell us about the sort of mechanics behind some of the more sophisticated hacking attacks? I mean, how people or how different uh, operatives try to break into uh, different systems.
2: So I think many of those, first, very many, many types of attacks and they use every possible bug or issue that we have in all the software that we are surrounded with. But many of them starts today by sending you something that looks like an innocent... Uh, app for your mobile phone or an innocent file. You get a CV from a work candidate. That app or that CV includes something that would break into your computer. From their point on, it basically owns your computer and can download off the web or off its control servers any kind of software that can control the device.
1: Is this a type of attack that uh, got into, for example, the JP Morgan system when the JP Morgan was dealing with a hack or uh, the type of uh, hack that could have gotten into the RNC and the deans, the Democratic and, and the Republican National Committees uh, during the, the election.
2: This is exactly the same kind of attacks. Again, we use different problems, different bugs, different vectors, but this is, all these attacks share this in common. And now we live in your computer, controlled by somebody in a different country or or somebody that you don't know, and that person can use your computer to uh, just click on some people's websites or to destroy everything or to get all your data or basically to do whatever they want. In your
0: mind, are there specific things that President-elect Donald Trump can initiate that would increase the level of cybersecurity for, let's say, U.S. government offices as well as for the general public in the United States?
2: I think what can be done is to really escalate the level of technology that uh, the government or the public use. It's less about regulation. I think the issue with the government is something is sometimes that the bureaucracy and the complexity and the sophistication makes everything takes five years. So by now they start to draft a new uh, RFP on a new technology. By the time it's completed, it's 10 years have passed and the technology is outdated. So I think there should be a way to encourage the government agencies to deploy new technology technologies fast in a a less structured manner even, because that's the only way to, to work fast.
1: One big concern is that right now uh, the safety is not very good to protect uh, important U.S. files from a cyber attack. Uh, do you have any insight into that? I mean, is your sense that corporate America and uh, and, and the U.S. government have been taking some serious and, imp- and and fast steps towards cybersecurity?
2: So I think first, America is relatively sophisticated in technology that, that we all use here, more than any other country in the world. But still, I think that you're absolutely right. We are not safe. Uh, corporate America is not 100% safe. And again, today, lo- if you look at the most advanced uh, t- uh, security technologies, uh, less than five percent of companies use them uh, company wide, so they actually block every every incoming threat. So we are wide open today.
0: Let's talk about Checkpoint, the company, and what it's doing. I was looking; you're going at a run rate of about 427, 28 million a quarter. What's the biggest seller right now for Checkpoint?
2: I think the fastest growing is what we call the Sandblast technology, which is the most advanced. It's a set of technologies that blocks the the attacks of tomorrow. Under that umbrella, there's at least 27 different technologies that each one can block a different variant of attacks. And again, we're talking mainly about the unknown attacks. That's the biggest challenge is how do we block something that we didn't see before.
1: Have you seen an incredible increase in interest recently?
2: Um, it's grow- the interest level is growing. If you look at corporate buying, which is where we are, unfortunately, doesn't behave. I mean, when you see a big attack, it's not that tomorrow morning you get uh, <laughs> 500 more enterprises being interested. And that's something that uh, can be changed because I think some of the enterprises should be uh, faster to act.
1: Thank you so much for being with us, Gil Schwed, Chief Executive Officer of Checkpoint, which is based in Tel Aviv.
0: Coming up today at Trump Tower in Midtown Manhattan, a meeting of the elite in technology chief executives of amazon.com as well as alphabet parent company of google and ibm they will all be speaking with president-elect donald trump well we want to speak with jing Kao now our technology reporter for bloomberg news to find out what this meeting is all about and how companies have perhaps positioned themselves prior to the meeting in order to Perhaps make that conversation a little smoother. One of the executives who is going to be at this meeting, Jenny uh, Rometti uh, of uh, IBM, wrote a letter, uh, an open letter to Donald uh, Trump while he was running for uh, uh, president, I believe. And I'm just uh, curious, does that have the president-elect after he won the election? And uh, he, uh, she got a lot of pushback because uh, apparently IBM employees didn't necessarily think that she was speaking for the company. Is there any... Combination? Who isn't she on the Stephen Schwartzman Council that is uh, going to advise the, pr- the president elect?
3: That's right. So she did write the letter after he was elected. It laid out some issues she thought were important, which included vocational education. It included um, things about uh, bringing more tech to government, her focus on healthcare, that kind of thing. Um, she is on that council, and the council is basically to uh, bring private sector expertise to the table. She's basically the only tech CEO on the panel as well, which means I think she will focus a lot on bringing more technology to the federal government, which of course helps IBM if they get those contracts. Yeah, I can imagine.
1: Ginny Rometty actually also announced last night that she planned to hire uh, as the CEO of IBM about 25,000 people in the U.S. and invest $1 billion over the next four years. Was there any reason why she released this other than as sort of a bargaining chip uh, ahead of the meeting with the tech leaders? And President-elect Trump. Well,
3: the company told me that these plans have been in the works for months. Uh, obviously, the timing is pretty nice for them, right? Um, but you know, this—the twenty-five thousand people, the one billion dollars in education and retraining—I think have been part of IBM's plans to try to attract the workers that they need, which are folks who have the skills or who w- want to learn the skills in things like cloud computing and artificial intelligence.
1: Thank you so much, Jing Cao, Bloomberg Technology Reporter.
0: Let's solve the problem. Let's solve the problem of increasing interest rates and people who hold fixed income. Marvin Lowe, Senior Global Market Strategist for BNY Mellon, joins us now. Marvin, thank you very much for being with us. So what is the uh, prevailing zeitgeist when it comes to owning bonds, holding on to what you've got, and perhaps buying or selling?
4: Um, you know, I, I think that we're in a period where we're all trying to guess what the new administration um, is going to pursue, what, what winds up being uh, their main um, focus. And depending on how you come out with that, and you know, we're all making these decisions with a limited amount of information. Um, it's going to guide how you should look at your portfolio. If you're in, in the inflation camp, you know, certainly um, uh, the curve steepening type of uh, trend that we see that we've seen um, is going to be a concern. And with rates having been that low uh, for that long, you see an outsized um, movement in yields percentage-wise. So,
1: Marvin, is the global search for yield over? I mean, why is this divergence between U.S. and German yields in particular? The divergence is the widest on record. Why is this able to continue without European investors flooding into the U.S. to capture the higher yields?
4: No, i i I think that we have to remember that the central banks even though there's a concern that they're stepping away from um the heavy policy tools that they've been using they're still actively in there so in europe you are still very much influenced by um an ecb that while they're buying less per month they're still buying and there still are supply issues around there and you kind of see the changes in in the shape of their curve but they're still buying the fed isn't buying they haven't been buying for uh for several years and um we are going down this kind of fiscal path that people have been talking about for a while before everybody else's. And, you know, whether or not that revives the economy, whether or not that drives inflation um, further, you know, we can make an argument that it might or might not get out of hand, but that, you know, that really is a concern. But there is still that policy divergence.
0: Marvin, there are many institutions which have been buying bonds throughout the last decade. If you are an institution and you have bonds that are currently underwater in terms of capital appreciation should you sell them or should you hold them
4: you know every 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 situation is uh, is unique out there um, I'm in the camp that yields um, do have the potential to continue to go higher um, I, I do. Um, remain concerned about the steeping of the curve, and you know that trend continuing. So, if you are a total return type of uh, investor where you're not locking in that income, I think you have to um, bring that into the equation.
1: The Bank of International Settlements had an interesting report uh, in the past five days or so, where analysts were talking about why we haven't seen a more disorderly rotation out of bonds. I mean, a lot of been a lot of concern leading up to this year has been focused on bond market liquidity and the ability for investors to move around. It's seems like that hasn't been a huge problem this time around. The BIS was attributing this to the fact that so many uh, sticky investors, the central bankers, the pensions, own these bonds and aren't going to sell them. Do you think that that's accurate, or do you think that that we still are at risk of a potential disorderly unwind of the market?
4: You know what, I'm not really concerned about um, a disorderly unwind. I I do think that those large pools of money um, are out there. I think that it takes a while to to change them. That doesn't mean that we... um, uh, won't see and, and may continue to see kind of these momentary flash crash type of um of events which seem to be more common rather than you know once a decade type of events and I think that that's where the market is at this point you know that those liquidity pools um are ultimately uh thin when you get that volatility and you know I think that we have to build that into um uh, into our thought process
0: what about high yield debt
4: you know what um so so I think that's um High yield still remains a uh, a decent asset class to think about. We talked about the talked about that the last time I was here, and if anything, with kind of this um, uh, stabilizing growth profile and potential for. Uh, some fiscal stimulus around it pushes the uh, credit story um, a little further out. You know, you might want to be short in that type of discussion, particularly if you're short, uh, particularly if you're concerned with the curve. I mean, but, would you, know, you take any?
0: Would you take the gain? I mean, I'm just looking at, for example, the exchange traded fund JNK, up 15 and a quarter percent this year,
1: which is actually lagging behind the broader index, which is 17 percent.
4: Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean. Um, you'll never get reprimanded for taking some gains, particularly as we go into the beginning of the year. And if we remember how this year began, there was certainly volatility in it. As an asset class, however, with uh, the income that you might need to be filling, I, I still like that asset class.
1: You know, mortgages is some is an area that I'm I'm really intrigued by right now. Uh, you have some investors saying, "Look, yields are rising. That could be a problem for mortgages uh, because people it will make credit tighter. It'll make it uh, it'll make it harder to refinance uh, your home uh, or less." Uh, less worthwhile to refinance. But I hear other people saying this is a fantastic opportunity because you will not get that refinancing. So people will actually be paying you what they say they'll be paying you for a longer period of time. Where do you weigh in on this?
4: You know, I, I, I think that's true. And, and I think that there are so many different flavors of mortgages with so many different types of structures out there that, you know, you kind of need the expertise to uh, to get in there. But, you know, certainly um, that refi risk uh, goes down with uh, with this rise in yields.
1: Which is positive, right, for, for, yes, for mortgage debt. Yes. Yes, so is. is that something that you're bullish on right now?
4: Um, you know what? Uh, I, I think I'm. I think I'm on the sidelines with that um, at the moment. There's um, you know a lot of influences that we're still trying to um, uh, to figure out.
0: You know, I'm just looking at mortgage rates right now, and they're 4, 4.5%, uh, 4.45% for a uh, 30-year fixed uh, refi in the New York metropolitan region. And that is a big increase from when you saw those rates under 4%. Uh, Marvin, uh, one other area, automobile loans. We've been tracking those as well, particularly in the in light of, uh, well, delinquent payments have been increasing.
1: Yeah, everyone's worried about subprime auto bubble, are you? Um.
4: Yeah, but from from a global mar- uh, from a global macro perspective, um, absolutely, uh, given how um, long that, that asset class and um, kind of that durable discussion has uh, driven a lot of the economic uh, growth that we've seen. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's certainly flashing red.
1: Thank you so much. Marvin Lowe, it's always great to hear what you have to say. Marvin Lowe, Senior Global Market Strategist at BNY Mellon, talking about what he sees in the year ahead of uncertainty.